Welcome to the Gutology Podcast, episode two. Throughout this series, over six episodes, we're going to be bringing you the science behind naturally healing and nourishing your gut. Uh, If you're listening to this uh, and it's episode two and you've not listened to episode one, go back. I urge you to start from the beginning. Uh, as we said last time, you might be struggling with gut-related symptoms or simply looking to optimise or improve your gut health. My name's Ollie Gallant. Um, I'm a radio host, podcaster and filmmaker, but I spent most of my 20s battling with gut-related health issues. And I met Julia, as we said last time. And briefly, um, Julia's expertise uh, as a nutritional therapist using a functional medicine approach to helping people with gut-related issues changed my life completely and my health. So we got together and we set up Gutology. Right now, all of the articles, everything you want to know, you can completely geek out about gut health. It doesn't matter if you know a little or you know a lot already, there'll be something there for you at gutology.co.uk. This is the Gutology Podcast, a guide to help you nourish your gut. And this week, it's all about the microbiome. Welcome, Julia. Hi. Round two. <laughs> Are you ready to go again? Yeah, very ready. Um, so I think this is this is the big one. You know, if you look at any of the key wording on the internet at the moment, the biggest rising trend in the last two years has been Brexit and microbiome. Yeah, which is more exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I thought it'd be a great opportunity this week to learn a little bit more about what your microbiome is, what yours means to you, what is diversity, how you can improve that in a really easy way, how that's going to affect your long-term health. And the whole point of this podcast is free, easy hacks to try and improve your gut. And we're going to come up with some of those today. But let's start right there. Let's talk about your gut. I remember when we first met, you said to me, it's almost more like an organ. Mm. Mm. Let's start there. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, the microbiome is only something that's really been in medical science for probably the last 10 or 20 years. Um, So it's very, very recent in terms of science history and medicine. And um, it is is considered really to be an organ now because it's a functional... functional area of the body and it's producing all sorts of stuff, regulating all, all sorts of stuff and it's interacting with all of the other organs in the body. So it's really exciting. It's like discovering we have a liver. What do we know about that? You know, this is making history. It's really, really good stuff. And when we talk about diversity within the microbiome, I mean, we hear it all the time, but what, what does that actually mean? So it's like how many of the different types do you have in there? So, you know, it's there's um, they've started to study different areas of the world, different populations, people that live in cities, people that live in rural communities, people in developed countries or developing countries. And they've observed quite a lot of differences there. And diversity is what is we believe now is to be the best way to have the, the greater diversity you have, meaning the greater number of different types of species of bacteria in your gut, then the better equipped you are to live a longer life, to be healthy, to regulate all sorts of stuff to do with your metabolism. So I had a friend to stay over the weekend and he spends a lot of his time working in the Philippines for, uh, that's where his business is based out there and they travel a lot. And as we were sat down and we were uh, we were just talking about we we're in the middle of recording this podcast and, and he was saying, so does that mean that my gut would look different to yours? And I said, I reckon, 
I'll ask Julia, but I reckon we might look very different on the inside just because he spends so much time there, even though originally he's from the UK. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So your sort of experience can almost be mapped out in what your gut microbes look like. So there's a lot that it's 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 one of those interesting things that we're just discovering a lot more about because we don't really know a lot yet. But, you know, it's it's kind of in what happens in the first few months of life really, really sets you up for then the rest of your life. And that sort of is like your kind of master house of bacteria. So um, what, whatever happens to you in your life, you can influence that and um, you can you can change it. It, but it still remains pretty much looking in that kind of similar way. So you can pick up bacteria because of travel generally and because of interaction with other humans. There's a lot of humans on the planet. You don't. You can pick up strains that are only found in Southeast Asia, but you've never ever been to Southeast Asia. But because these things are starting to, you know, they're, they're transmitted between humans, you can start picking up microbe, the microbes that you actually haven't had the direct contact from their source, if that makes sense. And if you're listening to this and you've got some you've got some gut issues or you're wondering that your diversity isn't great that can sound scary but is that also reassuring in a way that your diet and where you travel means you can change what's inside there so if you maybe we were talking i think last week about cesareans you know if you, you didn't pick up or you weren't breastfed you know things like that which means you might not have quite the range of microbiome that some people do you can expand that naturally as you get older. Yeah, you can. You can. So they've done a lot of studies on um, babies who have been delivered by cesarean section and those that haven't been breastfed. And yes, the microbiomes of those look different, but of course they're going to look different because the primary thing, you know, if you have breast milk and that is your only source of nutrition, then that carries with it certain bacteria. It stimulates the growth of one particular type of bacteria if you're bottle fed it doesn't it doesn't have that it doesn't have that same ability so you get a different type that flourishes in the gut of those sort of early newborns but then when they start eating food and mixing with other children and you know you then pick up all the bacteria that's in there so it can be shaped um yeah it can be shaped and molded really within the first sort of three four years of life and then from there on so in in terms of how how it sort of sets itself it's very very important those early years so you can manipulate it and you can change it but you might have to work a bit harder at doing that if you didn't have if you weren't breastfed or you were premature or you had were delivered by cesarean section but you can completely fix problems that that might occur but it might might you might have to work harder at it and based on your clinical experience looking after people that come to you and you know that just have a wiped out microbiome they've had loads of antibiotics they were they weren't breastfed or they had cesarean section or they had their appendix removed, they've had a poor diet, whatever the the reasons. In your experience, how quickly, because this is the thing now, when we look at exercise, it's like, well, how long is it going to take me to lose weight? Or how long do I need to be on that diet for? How hard do I need to train? How quickly, and I don't know if you can answer this, but in your experience, can you make that change in somebody's microbiome from a very, very poor, low diversity to, you know, a, a pretty solid place, a high diversity 
environment. Yeah, I would say in terms of how long it takes is totally how long is the piece of string. But I think you're looking about six months to really start sustainably changing someone's microbiome. And that would be an absolute minimum, really. But it can take as little as two hours to significantly increase growth of certain fungus in presence of alcohol, for example, or something like that. You know, it literally changes. It's such a dynamic thing. It's changing within the day, depending on what you eat or, you know, what you're breathing in will change the microbiome in your lungs. You know, it's, it's a very, very dynamic entity. But I think to sustainably change to completely look different from what it was from the start to the finish minimum six months really and then it's using lots of different tricks in order to sustain what you've now created if you want to learn some of those tricks uh, there is a six-week plan at gutology.co.uk right now which you can follow and you can make a big impact in nourishing your gut without it costing any money without it any crazy supplements or anything like that it's like a it's like a starter pack if you like and that's free you can just go online gutology .co.uk. I think the most fascinating thing about episode one that we did last week was realizing that, you know, we, we talk about constipation, we spoke about diarrhea and all those sorts of things. And everyone kind of knows that that's related to the gut and that makes sense to us. But when we were talking about the impact of your microbiome or your gut, well, last week it was more about the gut on your larger health, you know, the implications of immune disorders, you know, we were talking about things like diabetes, mm. uh, rheumatoid arthritis. When we shift from the overall functioning of the gut that we learn about to now focusing on the microbiome, it is slightly daunting as well to know that the microbiome can have a long-term impact on things that you might not realise were connected. I think what was fascinating to me was talking to you off-air about things like, let's just start with allergies, you know, we, it's so common now. We do a sister podcast to this about Michelin star food and I get to meet a lot of chefs and they were saying to me that 10 years ago, I, I, this wasn't an issue. I, I just served food and now I'm cooking Michelin star food, but I'm having to cater for gluten intolerance, people that can't eat onions or garlic or what has happened Okay, there's a lot of a lot of things that have happened, a lot of things, and it's terrifying as is, as it is interesting to be honest. So, um, one of the one of the kind of background um, things to understand about allergies and why they're more prevalent now is something called the hygiene hypothesis. Have you heard of that? Yeah, the so, idea that the more hygienic we become the lower the diversity of the bacteria. Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. So, you know, historically, you know, we would have, you know, the, this, this sort of indoor living is very modern. You know, it's only really, you know, been the last few decades where, you know, we've been more obsessed with computer screens as entertainment rather than running in the street with other children in the neighbourhood, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, I think what's happening is that in early life, there's a lot of antibiotic prescriptions in very, very early life, but it's not just the medication. It's actually more to do with the lifestyle as well, in that um, kids aren't really playing outdoors as much. Um, there's less, there's sort of more cleanliness. So like even, you know, contact with animals and things like that. Wash your hands immediately. You know, everything is very, very clean, very, very sterile. And that's the way we thought. But actually, it's like a, it's kind of a misunderstanding of what clean is, because clean isn't the complete absence of bacteria because actually you need bacteria to protect you from everything else. So clean isn't actually antibacterial. That's, you know, it's a really common modern misconception. So people are listening and they're going, yeah, but we're advertised to now that you get your antibacterial hand wash 
you know, uh, you, when you go anywhere near like a medical center, there's the there's the alcohol hand wash, the wipes that we buy for the counter service are anti- antibacterial. Are you, what in your home? Do you, how do you react to this? What's your- so there's there's the reasons behind that is because some bacteria is harmful, but what it doesn't take into account is the bacteria that's not harmful that it's then protective. So when when you're growing up in a, in a you never grow up in a sterile environment because bacteria is everywhere. But when it's much more clean than it should sort of naturally be, say, then your immune system it kind of loses its training time. So it should really the first like four or five years of life should be like university for the gut in terms of it's meeting all these microbes it's saying oh I don't like you I'm going to attack you or no you seem okay you seem friendly and it's kind of the immune system is becoming very educated because it's just had exposure to masses and masses of stuff whereas now because of the advent of things like antibiotics and the and the fact that we're far too clean and people bathe their children on a daily basis um, you know this is what's really encouraged um, and it's actually kind of clear out all of this bacteria so that the immune system doesn't really need to deal with it. So, so as a parent, how do you navigate that? Do you- <laughs> I bathe my kids once a week. <laughs> do you actually? I actually do. And, then, you know, if they've had, you know, my children are really quite young. They're four and six. So, you know, if they... Um, if they've had PE and they've gotten really hot and sweaty and grim, then yeah, I'll absolutely put them in the bath at the end of the day. But generally, I don't bath them as a routine. They just get that kind of once weekly. Okay, here's a question then. Yeah. <laughs> so your kids get home from school and you're sitting them down to dinner. Yeah. Is it wash hands before you it eat? It is, yeah. Right, yeah. okay. So there is a balance there. Yeah, like you don't want to completely, yeah, absolutely. You don't want to infect yourself with stuff, you know, and the stuff that they touch, like heaven knows. Like my kids are quite outdoorsy generally and they've got all, st- all sorts of stuff under their fingernails. I'm not going to have them eat- eating their food after all of that, you know, but that's like, that's kind of a basic cleanliness, you know, but do we spray Dettol all over the house? You know, no, absolutely not. You know, we're clean, but, you know, not antibacterial everything you know um, because it does it, it's 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 limiting the capacity of the immune system to deal for the rest of your life and can you later in life say if you people are listening to this and their mm. immune system's been you know they some people just say i i have a low immune system yeah. how many times do we hear that yeah. you know, i get colds a lot yeah you're talking about the first few years can you train it later in life to be hardier Mm, that's an interesting question and I don't know and I don't think science knows yet because I think a lot of, you know, the the latest kind of um, theory going on is that 85% of your immune system is within the gut, 85%, you know. So what people think is this imaginary, you know, beast that lives in our bodies to kill infections and things, it's actually mainly in our guts that do it. So, you know, that is, that is being educated really upon first exposures to the world that we live in. So whatever environment you're bringing those kids into um, and whatever they are exposed to in the first few years is that is their awareness of the environment. And then that does, it does pretty much set them up for life. So I think though, if if you find that going through life, and obviously a lot of the clients that I have do have a poor immune system, then you can do an awful lot about that, but you do it all by healing the gut and you start to regenerate some of the stuff that should have been done at the age of two and a half and they're now 80. (laughs) But actually you can still do a lot to improve that. So how far would you go on allergies? So things like um, eczema, um, 
you know, dermatology related symptoms, food allergies, things like that. Is that something that you just have for life or is it something that you can improve upon? No, you can improve on all of that. You can improve on all of that. So, you know, eczema is something that I see. I see a bit of eczema and I think... You know, there's I've seen several cases of really horrendous eczema in children, you know, age of maybe six, seven, eight, nine, that kind of area where it's it's covering their entire body, you know, not just the backs of the knees, like is really thought to be common with eczema, but actually it's it's pretty widespread. Then the eczema itself can become so inflamed and so infected that then they need to be hospitalized and they need more medication, you know, and I've seen kids like this and it's actually more frequent than you would think. Really, really nasty. And, you know, the only way to actually recover that um completely so that they're not prone to getting it again is by completely healing the gut and that's the way to do it but kids are so fast to respond to that sort of therapy um, even despite having been on a lot of medication like steroids and antibiotics to manage it in the couple of years prior to doing that sort of approach and then they they can then go on to live a completely eczema free life as so they grow older if someone was listening to this now and they had children who's, which is really common mm, yeah. I've got friends I've got kids yeah. that are covered in eczema mm how quickly without drugs do you think you could have a remission on symptoms so I've seen it in as little as about six weeks um, but I think in the more severe cases you see change within six weeks but it probably takes three to four months it's very fast with children very very fast it quite often involves removing an awful lot of dietary um, allergens though you know, dairy foods in particular can be a really, really common trigger for it. And that's a permanent so, thing. No, no. What we need to do is we need to find out what those triggers are in that individual child, take them away just for a bit, six months off dairy, you know, let's just get, get rid of it. It's not always dairy. It could be something else, could be could be soya, could be eggs, could be anything. But we sort of establish what that is most likely to be and we just get rid of it. We need to take the load off for a little while and stop the body reacting to stuff. And then once we can then fix the gut, and then the eczema starts to clear up and you can tell that it's not it's not inflamed anymore then we start a trial reintroduction because I think it's my opinion that yeah it's absolutely fine to eliminate for foods for a period of time but ultimately we want to be au fait with the environment around us so if um, you know for a child of six to be told they can't have dairy for the rest of their lives is extremely limiting but if we take it out for six months and then reintroduce it slowly and get their system used to it then nine times out of ten they can continue to eat that and it doesn't affect them. Uh, so many of the um, diets that are out there now, I think one thing that's come re- really popular recently is things like the FODMAP diet. Yeah. With things, things like FODMAP, um, paleo, uh, ketogenic diets, yeah. all those sorts of things. But particularly the FODMAP, I think, is an interesting one mm. before we get on to this week's news, yeah. is this idea or an elimination diet where that people have suffered with gut issues or immune issues or whatever and they go on these diets and and this is actually exactly what I did so I was really really struggling in my early 20s with really bad gastro issues lethargy Mm. all those sorts of things and a nutritionist recommended for me to go on to the FODMAP diet and it did it drastically improved my symptoms but it was so restrictive. Mm. So, and I think the thing that I never understood was I that for me was I assumed I was going to be on that diet for life Mm. so Mm. it was no onions, no garlic, no bread, no dairy. I mean, hyper restrictive. Mm. But I did have, and I just assumed at the time that my system was bad. So therefore, that's all it would could digest. And there was nothing that I could do about it now. 
And what you're saying there about children, it just needs to be for a period of time. That now makes sense to me because I've gone back to being able to tolerate by he by going through that healing process and after the gut. I can, within reason now, I can eat. I mean, I choose to eat a relatively healthy diet because I don't want to get out of control. But if I wanted to eat garlic, onion, they're in my daily diet now mm. and they don't mm. cause me any problems. And so that idea, I think that's a really important kind of like thing to understand is that you may need to do something restrictive, but it's not forever. No, it's not forever. It's for as long as it takes to start reshaping what the microbiome looks like. And then once you do that, you're not reactive. You then can digest certain things. Um, you know, the ability of what that gut bacteria can actually do in terms of digesting food is enormous. Absolutely enormous what it can do. But I wish someone had told me this. That, you know, there'll be people <laughs> listening now who the doctor's gone, it's just IBS. Oh, it's just, you're just intolerant. You're just, and it, you feel hopeless. There'll be people listening to this right now. I think this is exciting. Like, isn't that like a, that gives so much hope Mm. Because it these, it sounds silly for people that don't suffer from from things like this. But you know things like diabetes or even eczema, bad skin, digestive problems. Like we talked about that, that can have even from an actual mood regulating thing, it can make you feel low. But just from a lifestyle point of view, it's miserable for people. It has it really degrades their quality of life. And so I think that that it is terribly exciting that there is a there is an option, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, should we get into news this week? So every week we're going to bring you an article, something that's just been released that we think is of interest to you. Will Julia will convert that into layman's terms and also talk about well what that actually means. And there were several articles that kind of caught our eye this week. Um, and on the note of the microbiome, we'll talk a little bit firstly about people take that are on prescription medication because an article came out saying that 20% of... We, we understand, I think, everyone listening, that antibiotics can be really devastating for your microbiome. The less you can take them, the better. But we don't really understand that non-antibiotics, a.k.a other prescription medicine can also have a devastating impact on your microbiome. They're saying that 27% of non-antibiotics inhibited the growth of at least at least one species of bacteria. So firstly, what sort of tablets could these be like what how common are they so the sorts of um, the sorts of medications um, that it's referring to you know so obviously drugs like for mental health problems like for anxiety or depression could be high blood pressure medication could be statin therapy for high cholesterol it could it could actually be any you know what they've done is they've taken you know all the, look at all the drugs on the market and said that 24% of them are having this detrimental effect on at least one type of bacteria within the microbiome. So actually, the more we understand that, I, I think that's probably a really conservative figure, 24%, because, you know, that's so significant and it's so scary. You know, um, I don't think I see... I, w I would say 
80% of the clients that I see are all on quite a significant number of medicines when they come to see me. You know, I think it's quite reflective that as you get older, people are taking medication. And it's not to say that that's a bad thing because, you know, uh, you know, the medicines that are available now can literally save lives and elongate people's lives. You know, is you know, there's always a, a reason to take them. But I think, you know, we're living in this world where we're sort of med- possibly over medicating um, and maybe um, not really checking on those people you know drugs that are meant to be taken for a two-month period or taken for a 20-year period without kind of being really checked and I think there's there's lots of issues surrounding that but I think with in terms of the background to this we've always thought that antibiotics because they're antibacterial drugs then yeah of course they start to damage the microbiome and they start to damage the gut bacteria that are living there um but what we didn't really know is is the effect that the other medications had, you know. So we've always known about digestive drugs that are non-antibiotics, such as acid reduction um, drugs like proton pump inhibitors, things like omeprazole. They can have an impact on the microbiome, but you can easily work that out because it's starting to impair the, the sort of natural physiology of the gut. So it's likely to have an effect on the microbiome. But what's so surprising is these drugs that act in a completely different region of the body, so on the heart or... Um, in the brain but yet they still have an effect on damaging the microbiome so that's really interesting and what we were saying last week about you know the fact that you people don't need necessarily to be on these lifelong drugs because you can do things to resolve those issues like Mm. taking acid suppressant Mm. drugs Mm. Mm. the other thing that came up in the articles was about the drugs that you're taking for depression or depressive orders like 25 this is a staggering figure but 25% of the population are on some kind of antidepressant right now. That just, that is just staggering, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, there's something going wrong somewhere there, isn't there? Um, the first line treatment for kind of serotonin uptake, or basically these antidepressants, mm. SSRIs, I think they call yeah. them, is that they not only could be wreaking havoc with your serotonin levels but they could even be having knock-on effects like increasing weight gain and that in turn is connected in some way to the microbiome Mm, mm. yeah so what the so ssris they you know they it might be useful to just explain a little bit of how they work and then it can kind of connect what's going on so they they primarily work by normally when um, serotonin is considered to be a happy hormone. It does all kinds of things in the body, but um, it it's it relieves depression when it's present in the body. So it's often been thought for a long, long period of time that if you have a deficiency of serotonin, it can make you depressed. So what what normally happens is serotonin is a chemical that passes from one nerve cell to the next nerve cell um, and it has like a little bridging gap and this bridging gap is called a synapse so if you need serotonin to make you feel happy it means that it will cross the bridging gap and stimulate the next nerve cell so what the drug does is it takes that bit of serotonin and it leaves it in the gap more permanently whereas otherwise it would be quickly recycled and taken back into the initial nerve cell so that it's not it can't transmit again until it's got under the signal so just to get my head around that what Mm. you're saying is in my simple terms for my slow brain is that by trying to increase the uptake of serotonin, we're disrupting the ni- the natural cycle of serotonin. So what the what the drug does is the opposite of that. Actually, it blocks the reuptake of serotonin, so it's leaving it in that synapse. So it continues. To so make it continues you feel good. to work. Yeah. So instead of it working once and then going back to its home again, 
it's then made to work again and again and again for just that one molecule of serotonin. And why is that a bad thing? So it's not necessarily because that if somebody's got a true deficiency of serotonin, then this is a way to almost enhance what you do produce. So if you if you produce a tenth of what you should produce normally and you take an SSRI like fluoxetine, for example, then it can make you feel less depressed because it's enhancing the effect of the serotonin you have. So it's not actually any, ser- any serotonin in the drug. It's just affecting the way that you're metabolizing it to make it last longer. So it's kind of prolonging the effects of what you have or maximizing what you have. But that drug in turn could be damaging your microbiome at the well, same time. Well, this is what's, what's really interesting with serotonin drugs because we know that 95% of the serotonin in the body is made in the gut, so it has an enormous impact on the gut itself. And we know from last episode that the um, the gut microbes are actually influencing the serotonin in the brain as well. So the when you take the SSRI, SSRI medication, it interferes and it destroys a particular strain of um, gut bacteria. I think it's the lactobacillus type of bacteria that it actually destroys. And that is then involved in producing side effects because without with less of that sort of bacteria you start to lose the benefits of weight regulation and appetite regulation and things like that so what so, we're saying is if you're on SSRIs you could be disrupting the bacteria to the point where you could be putting on weight yes and that's why in certain studies with things like fecal microbiome transplants they've seen that taking bacteria from one person who has who is obese and putting it in somebody that is skinny within a few months, they start to hold on to, they start to gain weight. Yeah. Because there are certain bacteria or lack of bacteria yeah. that can actually be, be regulating your weight. Yeah, that's it. And that's what is so, so fascinating because, you know, it's not like I know from my practice of the last decade that you do not, it's not as simple as calories in makes you gain weight or lose weight. It's absolutely not as simple. You know, you have people that are having very, very restricted diets with, you know, 500 calories a day for a month and they're killing themselves and they're still gaining weight. So how does that happen? And that is the things that play. And that is why you see families that have similar weight styles. It's not just about diet. No, no, it's 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 a diet is, you know, I want to be careful what I say here because I'm a nutritional therapist, but diet is a small piece of the pie. We're using diet as a tool to manipulate other things. But the food itself is really just a signal. So do you think that in years to come, a way that we might regulate weight is by adapting the microbiome rather than putting people on weight watchers yeah definitely definitely i think what you've got to do is understand the physiology of what's going on in your in your microbiome and how that's affecting your blood sugar levels for example and how that's affecting your appetite and then you've got to things like weight watchers can be really useful for the community spirit and the motivation and also the adaptations to your lifestyle because not everybody that's trying to lose weight actually knows what foods to eat they're still eating highly processed foods and thinking, well, because it's low in calories, then why aren't I losing weight? So actually, things like Weight Watchers can be really useful in terms of trying to educate people about what foods they should really be eating. But the irony with both of these things, whether you're taking SSRIs and it's damaging your microbiome and you're trying to improve depression, the the irony could be, and the same with, say, if you have excessive weight gain, you know you're eating a healthy diet. If you try to improve, the overall message is if you improve your microbiome, you will 
potentially be releasing more serotonin, which might remove the need for the SSRIs in the first place. And if you naturally have a microbiome that makes you gain weight, by going on the diet, you might start to change the microbiome over time so that your microbiome isn't the type of microbiome that makes you gain weight. That's exactly right. So you need to be a nutritional therapist, Ollie, because that's exactly what we're trying. What we're trying to do. It's exactly what we're trying to do. Is we're trying to. Um, it's it's understanding when somebody really needs a medication, and, and actually understanding if if that if that need could possibly or potentially be removed by looking at the physiology of that person. And with the microbiome, it's it's got the potential to remove the need for that medication so that is not to say anybody should just stop taking their medication at all but it's just to say there's potential out there if you want to read more about these articles they're online right now you can discover these different conditions how they relate to the gut all online just head to gutology.co.uk in the second part of this week's podcast, um, while we're talking about the microbiome and diversity, one thing that we can't avoid is probiotics. And this is, I think this is probably one of the most important things that we'll talk about on this podcast, because it's potentially one of the most important, yet the most misunderstood. If you speak to anybody about probiotics, everyone will have a different answer. And everyone's tried something completely different. And the ironic thing is, they probably all have different microbiome in the first place. So how do you even begin to know what are the right probiotics to take? Okay, so that is, that is a great question. A great question. But there is so many different ones on the market so many different ones, lots of different combinations. Some are single strains, some are multi-strains, some are really low counts of numbers of bacteria, some are really high counts of bacteria. Then there's issues in terms of them. Well, do they get past the stomach acid? Because like we said in episode one, the stomach acid is pretty much designed to kill bacteria on contacts. So, you know, do they even get past that? So then there's some companies that have enteric coated the supplements in order to get them past the digestive enzymes and the acids. Um, that, but then yet, yeah, how do powdered probiotics work then? Because they're sort of open, you know, there's lots of different issues there. And I think a lot of it is we, we're sort of basing these things on what we know so far. So there's like three sort of major strains of bacteria that have been a bit more well studied, a bit more extensively studied. And that's lactobacillus, which a lot of people might have heard of because it's often called lactobacillus acidophilus. That's a type of lactobacillus. So a lot of people sometimes think acidophilus is like the probiotic because that's one of the really popular ones. Um, the other type is bifidobacteria and the other type is Saccharomyces boulardii, which is actually a type of yeast actually. So sort of using a beneficial yeast there because the microbiome is not just bacteria, it's looking at yeast, it's looking at fungi, parasites, it's all kinds of stuff, you know. So we're sort of looking collectively at all of those things. So I think with those three strains, a lot of the products on the market are based on those three types of bacteria or yeast. Um, but then there's other combinations that haven't really been studied, haven't really been tested. But, um, you know, in they're not don't really appear to be doing a lot of harm either you know in terms of what they're what they're doing because we're constantly exposed to different types of bacteria and in terms of like the count of what we're taking in um the it the stronger was thought to be the better 
But now we think, wow, maybe that might not actually have anything to do with it. Um, and then arguments of some companies that aren't um, coating their capsules in something in order to get it past the stomach acid. Well, there's some evidence now that actually says that dead bacteria can still have an impact well, on that, a microbiome. Well, logically so, to me as well, if we're talking about you get your bacteria from the food you eat, yeah. then it must be surviving past the stomach acid. Yeah. If you're saying that eating cruciferous vegetables is yeah. full of good bacteria, yeah. there must be some mechanism that allows it to go all the way through and there still be bacteria left over. Well, or is it that cruciferous vegetables have got fibres in it that feed the good bacteria, so the fibres make it through, but that bacteria that is on it gets destroyed earlier in the digestive tract, but then the fibres make it all the way through that then feed and nourish the bacteria that is in your large intestine. But then would that argue that if you have a low if you, if we're saying you can increase your bacteria by the foods you eat, if certain bacteria have disappeared, does that mean that you can encourage or grow those yeah. with just the food that you're eating? Um, I don't really get what you're saying there. So say, say um, you've got a really, really low diversity of bacteria. If we're saying that you can, by increasing your diet of vegetables, different coloured mm. foods, fermented stuff, yeah. there must be some bacteria in there because if yeah. you're increasing your diversity, yeah. it must be the bacteria of the food that's going through at some point. So I see your point there and you're probably right. And yes, I think that it does get in. But the diversity of the food makes for a diverse microbiome because of, of the different phytochemicals that are in there. So plant chemicals, phytochemicals. Um, so you've got the fibres there. But you've got other nutrients as well, like the things that give them their colour, those pigments, they nourish certain types of bacteria. The fibres, you get soluble fibre within something like oats and you also get insoluble fibre that gives the store bulk. They both nourish different types of fibre. Like, there's so many different aspects to the food we eat. So yes, some of the bacteria that it brings with it probably does get through the stomach acid, but it's actually all the other components of that food as well. So to make it really, really simple, if you have a diet that's low in diversity, i.e. you're eating the same thing all the time, you're going to have a microbiome that loses its diversity. But if you are eating different sorts of foods all the time and you're rotating your foods according to seasons, which is now considered to be really old fashioned, that is the way we should be doing it because we're naturally encouraging that diversity to come again by rotating what we should have. So in winter, when we're having lots of squashes and root vegetables and things like that, that's really nourishing certain aspects of our microbiome that might get neglected when we get to springtime and we're eating like raw salads and radishes and cucumbers and things because they will nourish a different type of the microbiome. So it's kind of looking at all of it and within the year, you're actually targeting different types. But if you eat the same microwave meal all year round, your diversity is going to get narrower and narrower and narrower and you're going to lose all the benefits that that bacteria brings. And as the diversity gets narrower and narrower, is there just less of the bacteria or do they disappear altogether? So it's probably that there's less of it. Probably that's less of it. Even with taking antibiotics, you don't kill, you don't make your gut sterile. Right. You don't. But what you do is you massively reduce numbers. Yep. But then because but that should be reassuring. Yes, it should be. Exactly. Exactly. Even antibiotics that are designed to kill bacteria can't kill all of the bacteria. So then it just divides and grows again. Okay, so somebody's listening to this podcast, yeah. they're perfectly fit and healthy, they just want to optimise their gut because they've read loads about it in the press that, and we've learned a lot over just two episodes of how you can increase life expectancy, your overall health, all of these things from looking after your gut. You don't have any stomach problems. 
Should you be taking probiotics? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend it because I would say the absolute, the, the kind of gold standard way of a good diverse microbiome is foods so you, and lifestyle. So you haven't got a load of Yakult in the fridge at home? <laughs> I don't. No, <laughs> that's not something I have. But I eat a varied diet and I have fermented foods. Have you heard of fermented foods? Yeah. So things like sauerkraut, yeah. fermented vegetables, kimchi. Yeah. yeah. So what you're saying is, is put down the Yakult, don't, or other brands are available, don't be taking supplement probiotics unless you're under the guide of a nutritionist and you genuinely have some issues that they're saying this might help mm. with, because that, that you are saying that they are useful in certain areas. Yes, definitely. Get it from your food. Yeah, get it from your food. And also, if it's not broken, don't fix it. What you don't want to do is try and manipulate the microbiome when it's working for you. If you're fit, you're healthy, you've got plenty of energy, you sleep well, you, <laughs> you've got a good microbiome. So you don't want to go and manipulate that because, you know, I've not seen in my practice and I prescribe a lot of um, probiotics. I have not really seen adverse reactions. It's not something that I've seen. And I think in, this, in the literature as well, scientifically, there's not really a lot of adversity to taking probiotics in most people. And, um, you know, I, I think that it's, you know, if it's on the shelf, you can get them in Tesco's now. Well, what harm can it do? Actually, I think it could potentially do some harm um, because it's giving, you know, it, it's effectively getting, could potentially decrease the diversity because if you take a probiotic and you don't need it, then you're giving your gut the same signal every day for however many days, weeks or months you choose to take that probiotic. And it's the same signal. Now, that's not reflective of a healthy environment, healthy lifestyle. We should be giving ourselves different signals all the time. Because so. the gut could become lazy in producing that bacteria, you mean? Um, it's not so much. It's not so much that. I mean, you know, in how probiotics work, it's normally that they are giving a sort of giving a signal for the microbiome that's naturally there to um, to increase its count or decrease its count or something like that. And they're also competitive with each other. So if you're taking a probiotic, it can, for a very short period of time, occupy space so that something that's more harmful can't get the food sources, you know, so it kind of pushes them out in that way. Well, the mad thing about this is I didn't expect to be doing a gut health podcast to be telling people not to take probiotics, but... but well, that's to, that's to, so that's saying if you're really healthy and you just want to optimize your gut, the absolute best way to do it is diet and fermented foods and um, getting out there in the fresh air as well. Because that, believe it or not, has a massive impact. Exercise impacts your microbiome even. OK, so, so we're back to the diet. We're back to exercise. We're going old school with it. We're going old school. Yeah, de definitely. <coughs> Okay, so you have to excuse me. My voice has been straight. Is that connected to the microbiome, my, my sore throat, or is it just talking too much? Yeah, we might need to do some work <laughs> with that. <laughs> um, so um, every single week, we're going to bring you a simple tip. Now, we were laughing before the show because Julia said to me that uh, your husband, we said last week about don't eat three hours before you go to bed. Yeah. And you said that he'd actually... Yeah, he'd actually, um, he'd actually last night... Had, stopped eating three hours before bed because my husband is a he is a nighttime snacker yeah <laughs> and uh, yeah so I've said to him that no this is not a good idea but I've been saying that to him for perhaps the last 10 years and uh, now Ollie you've endorsed it Brilliant. he's followed okay. the advice so you're this. a very powerful man uh, so this week's uh, recommendation then is uh, not quite the same as what we were saying last week this is more 
oral hygiene related but as we go back to episode one where we're saying that it all begins in the beginning we're going to talk about something really really simple you can do to keep your oral hygiene healthy which we now know has a massive impact on the rest of the digestive system so this week it's all about replacing your mouthwash yeah so a really common thing that um that people do as part of like a dental routine is to um swill out a mouthwash and you know for you know if if that's particularly needed for a dental issue that's one thing but I think as a routine then that might not be the best idea because actually um, what it could be doing is actually damaging the microbiome in the mouth and from episode one we discussed how it's a one directional system but it is a system of everything is connected so if you're kind of constantly wiping the microbiome of the mouth morning and evening what impact is then that going to have not only on the mouth but then further down the digestive tract as well so um, one of my recommendations would be to um, actually do something called oil pulling. Um, and it's a really ancient technique. It comes from, I think, Ayurvedic medicine, actually, you know, Indian medicine. Um, and it's it, the, the, you can do it with any oil. Sesame oil was the one that's traditionally used, but coconut oil has got antifungal properties, so it might be useful for somebody who's got thrush in the mouth or anything like that. And thrush in the mouth would present itself with what? Uh, like a like white, white coating. On the tongue? Um, yeah. Is that a true thing then, that if you stick your tongue out in the mirror... Yeah, an indication of your health is to do with the colour of your tongue. Is yeah, that you can tell a lot from your tongue. You know, I mean, that's what you know. Doctors used to do that is look at your tongue and your nails and your eyes and look at how healthy you were. You know, we rely a lot more on lab data now and blood tests than we do looking at those kind of visual things. But you know, your tongue actually says quite a lot. You know, you can see for somebody who's had quite long-standing digestive problems, sometimes you can see a really deep crack or crevice running right down the centre of their tongue all the way to the back. You can see a different coating on the tongue you can see lots of different things that are not right and that can reflect um, what's going on on the inside Um, but with oil pulling what the the sort of theory behind it is is hugely detoxifying of um, any kind of bacteria that gets in the crevices of the mouth because the texture of the oil um, actually allows it to seep into the cracks that dental floss can't get into. So, um, you know, any sort of cavities or crevices, you know, with the gums, the oil, if you swill it in your mouth for about 15 minutes, first, it must be first thing in the morning. Um, so you've accumulated a lot of bacteria in your mouth while you've been sleeping. And um, you're swilling it around just really gently, not vigorously, because you'd exhaust your jaw. But um and then after 15 minutes, it's collected such a lot of bacteria and the oil like holds onto it. And then you just spit it out. Um, okay, so definitely don't swallow. Don't swallow it because all you're doing is then giving your gut a lot to deal with there. Yeah. You always spit it out. And just a tip is spit it out into the toilet bowl rather than the sink because oh, it, it, could, sets. it could set and yeah. pop your sink. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, it does make your mouth feel a lot cleaner. Some people say it really whitens your teeth and or, you know, things like that. So wake up in the morning, mm. do you, you brush your teeth? No, before Don't. you've done anything. So you'd brush your teeth afterwards. But I'm just trying to be realistic for people. Yeah. I'm thinking about my morning routine. Okay. It's wake up. Yeah. It's grab my bag. Yeah. It's get in the car. Yeah. And it's bolt to the studio. Yeah. So could I one day a week wake up 
I'm assuming this can just be coconut oil you buy in the supermarket. Yeah, Your yeah. food stuff. Yeah. So take a spoon of that, shove yeah. it in my mouth. Yeah. And swill it in my mouth while I'm driving my 20 minutes to work. Yeah. And I just spit it out when I get to work. And that yeah. could be really beneficial. You could do that. You could do that. When I do it, I would do it when I when I was in the shower washing my hair. Oh, uh, okay. And then so you sort of put, you know, get up, put, put the oil in your mouth. And then you just happily swill it around, wash your hair, get out of the shower, spit out the oil. And that's kind of how I found it works. Um, because, you know, it is, it's it's not an easy thing to do. and it's But it's a habit thing to do. And you would say get rid of the mouthwash. I would, yes, I would, unless there's a real dental reason to but, have it. Because it's the same reason of killing off the bacteria that look after your so teeth. You're killing off the bacteria that look after it. And so without the healthy microbiome in the mouth itself, you can accelerate tooth decay. So you're kind of fighting your natural defences there. So there's a new thing this week. There's two microbiomes. There's one in the mouth and there's one in the gut. And there's one in the lungs and, you know, the nose has got a different microbiome. The vagina's got a different microbiome. No, literally, it's, it's um, you know, it, it's all of these things are kind of effectively external anything that's open to the environment um, needs a microbiome because this is how we defend ourselves and the whole thing with it is is that just basic like an overriding rule is just try not to mess with it too much just yeah. let you know you're talking about you know bathing your kids once a week yeah. or you know not using loads of mouthwash every day or not yeah. taking loads of different drugs just letting it do what it's do like just yeah. almost trust in evolution yeah. We got this far for a reason yeah. and we weren't doing anything. We didn't, it was almost better before we didn't know too much. Yeah. That's the mad thing, isn't it? It's, and it's going back to, it's going back to basics. None of what we've said today is rocket science at all. It's like, you need to get some fresh air. You need to move your body and get a bit of exercise. You need but to eat well. I think what the difficult thing is for us now is that we're being advertised to and we're being told constantly that we're doing the wrong thing by not doing anything. You know, the idea, if you look at the adverts, it's like to look after your teeth. You've got mm. to use this mouthwash every day and this toothpaste. You know, mm. we're being told by certain doctors that in order to reduce stomach acid, you've got to stay on this medicine for life. Yeah. You know, and I think that is what is that is the battle and that's the difficulty. And that is the whole reason for this podcast mm. is kind of just really to lightly cut through a lot of the bullshit. Yeah. To say we're not selling you mm. anything here. You don't need to take this. You can just do some really simple things. Yeah. I mean, if you correlate all of what we're being, like you say, we're being sold all these different ideas and we've got, you know, houses full of chemicals and taking all these drugs and eating all these processed foods and things that have been made, you know, you know, all of that correlate that. It's like you might have somebody argue, well, what are we all doing so wrong? Because we're all doing that. But then also look at the epidemiology of diseases, like rising allergies, rising eczema, rising depression, rising this, rising cancer. Like, so actually we are doing something wrong what we're trying to understand is what that is and how can we get back to nature whilst remaining in a kind of modern modern world uh, well that's it i'm not showering anymore i'm, I'm writing that <laughs> off actually do you know what's really funny and we'll, we'll finish on this because i think that's a nice conclusion but my really good friend harry is a hairdresser he runs a fantastic barbers in stratford-upon-avon near where we live and um I have quite thick hair and it was always really, really like quite wild. And it was a nightmare because I had to keep it really, really short. Otherwise, I just walk around with this kind of like afro, if you like. It's quite curly. And we lived together for a while and I just I'd be in the morning trying to flatten it down and all this hair everywhere. I mean, to a certain extent, I still do. And he just said to me, stop washing it. I said, well, what do you mean? Like, that's gross. And he's like, just, I promise you, stop using shampoo and just watch what happens. And the last time I washed my hair must have been, I don't know, like four years maybe ago. And it just 
stop it just calmed down and my hair is in really good it's good condition it never looks greasy i wash it under water in the shower but i don't put anything in it it doesn't smell and he was just like yeah if if you can get through that first month or whatever it is the hair will look after itself because it's designed to look after itself. Yeah. And he's a hairdresser. Mm. I think that a really good bit of homework would be for everybody to go back home and look at how many products they use on a daily basis. So look at all your shampoo, your conditioner, your soaps, your face creams, your moisturizers, your age defying whatever's, you know, your, you know, everything to do with your routines of hair, body, makeup, and just alarm yourself at how much and do you think that your bodies are meant to run on all of that well, stuff? Well, that's the thing as well, because what you're saying is, is that your skin is absorbing those things and your body is processing it all. Yeah, which puts more stress on the immune system ultimately. Okay, I think that is a good place to finish on. Um, www.com gutology.co.uk you can go and read more you can see video clips from what we've done today and what we've discussed if you want to share those with people and say you'll never guess what stop washing your kids and (laughs) and all your friends are going to think you're a complete weirdo Uh, if you want to find out more that is the place to do it and we will see you next time for episode three